0: All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recorded by Cory Samuel. The History of England from the Accession of James II by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book 1, chapter 5, part 14. And all was lost and nothing remained but that he should prepare to meet death, as became one who had thought himself not unworthy to wear the crown of William the Conqueror, and of Richard the Lionhearted, of the hero of Cressy, and of the hero of Agincourt. The captive might easily have called to mind other domestic examples still better suited to his condition. Within a hundred years two sovereigns whose blood ran in his veins, one of them a delicate woman had been placed in the same situation in which he now stood. They had shown, in the prison and on the scaffold, virtue of which, in the season of prosperity, they had seemed incapable, and had half-redeemed great crimes and errors by enduring with Christian meekness and princely dignity all that victorious enemies could inflict. Of cowardice Monmouth had never been accused, and, even had he been wanting in constitutional courage. It might have been expected that the defect would have been supplied by pride and by despair. The eyes of the whole world were upon him. The latest generations would know how, in that extremity, he had borne himself. To the brave peasants of the West he owed it to show that they had not poured forth their blood for a leader unworthy of their attachment. To her who had sacrificed everything for his sake he owed it so to bear himself that, though she might weep for him, she should not blush for him. It was not for him to lament and supplicate. His reason, too, should have told him that lamentation and supplication would be unavailing. He had done that which could never be forgiven. He was in the grasp of one who never forgave. But the fortitude of Monmouth was not that higher sort of fortitude which is derived from reflection and from self-respect, nor had nature given him one of those stout hearts from which neither adversity nor peril can extort any sign of weakness his courage rose and fell with his animal spirits it was sustained on the field of battle by the excitement of action by the hope of victory by the strange influence of sympathy all such aids were now taken away the spoiled darling of the court and of the populace accustomed to be loved and worshipped wherever he appeared was now surrounded by stern jailers, in whose eyes he read his doom. Yet a few hours of gloomy seclusion, and he must die a violent and shameful death. His heart sank within him. Life seemed worth purchasing by any humiliation, nor could his mind, always feeble and now distracted by terror, perceive that humiliation must degrade, but could not save him. As soon as he reached Ringwood, he wrote to the king, The letter was that of a man whom a craven fear had made insensible to shame. He professed in vehement terms his remorse for his treason. He affirmed that, when he promised his cousins at The Hague not to raise troubles in England, he had fully meant to keep his word. Unhappily, he had afterwards been seduced from his allegiance by some horrid people who had heated his mind by calumnies and misled him by sophistry. But now he abhorred them, he abhorred himself." He begged in piteous terms that he might be admitted to the royal presence. There was a secret which he could not trust to paper, a secret which lay in a single word, and which, if he spoke that word, would secure the throne against all danger. On the following day he dispatched letters, imploring the Queen Dowager and the Lord Treasurer to intercede on his behalf. When it was known in London how he had abased himself, the general surprise was great, and no man was more amazed than Beryllian, who had resided in England during two bloody prescriptions, and had seen numerous victims, both of the opposition and of the court, submit to their fate without womanish entreaties and lamentations. Monmouth and Grey remained at Ringwood two days. They were then carried up to London, under the guard of a large body of regular troops and militia. In the coach with the Duke was an officer whose orders were to stab the prisoner if a rescue were attempted. At every town along the road the train-bands of the neighbourhood had been mustered under the command of the principal gentry. The march lasted three days, and terminated at Vauxhall, where a regiment, commanded by George Legg, Lord Dartmouth, was in readiness to receive the prisoners. They were put on board of a state barge, and carried down the river to Whitehall Stairs. Lumley and Portman had alternately watched the Duke day and night till they had brought him within the walls of the palace. Both the demeanour of Monmouth and that of Grey during the journey filled all observers with surprise. Monmouth was altogether unnerved. Grey was not only calm but cheerful, talked pleasantly of horses, dogs, and field-sports, and even made jocose allusions to the perilous situation in which he stood. The king cannot be blamed for determining that Monmouth should suffer death. Every man who heads a rebellion against an established government stakes his life on the event and rebellion was the smallest part of Monmouth's crime. He had declared against his uncle a war without quarter. In the manifesto put forth at Lyme, James had been held up to execration as an incendiary, as an assassin who had strangled one innocent man and cut the throat of another, and lastly as the poisoner of his own brother. To spare an enemy who had not scrupled to resort to such extremities would have been an act of rare, perhaps of blameable generosity— but to see him, and not despair him, was an outrage on humanity and decency. This outrage the king resolved to commit. The arms of the prisoner were bound behind him with a silken cord, and, thus secured, he was ushered into the presence of the implacable kinsman whom he had wronged. Then Monmouth threw himself on the ground, and crawled to the king's feet. He wept. He tried to embrace his uncle's knees with his pinion arms. He begged for life—only life! Only life life at any price. He owned that he had been guilty of a great crime, but tried to throw the blame on others, particularly on Argyle, who would rather have put his legs into the boots than have saved his own life by such baseness. By the ties of Kindred, by the memory of the late king who had been the best and truest of brothers, the unhappy man adjured James to show some mercy. James gravely replied that this repentance was of the latest, that he was sorry for the misery which the prisoner had brought on himself, but that the case was not one for leniency. A declaration filled with atrocious calumnies had been put forth. The regal title had been assumed. For treason so aggravated, there could be no pardon on this side of the grave. The poor terrified duke vowed that he had never wished to take the crown, but had been led into that fatal error by others. As to the declaration, he had not written it. He had not read it. He had signed it without looking at it. It was all the work of Ferguson, that bloody villain Ferguson. "'Do you expect me to believe,' said James, with contempt, but too well merited, "'that you set your hand to a paper of such moment, without knowing what it contained?' One depth of infamy only remained, and even to that the prisoner descended. He was pre-eminently the champion of the Protestant religion." the interest of that religion had been his plea for conspiring against the government of his father, and for bringing on his country the miseries of civil war. Yet he was not ashamed to hint that he was inclined to be reconciled to the Church of Rome. The king eagerly offered him spiritual assistance, but said nothing of pardon or respite. "'Is there then no hope?' asked Monmouth. James turned away in silence. Then Monmouth strove to rally his courage, rose from his knees and retired with a firmness which he had not shown since his overthrow. Gray was introduced next. He behaved with a propriety and fortitude which moved even the stern and resentful king, frankly owned himself guilty, made no excuses, and did not once stoop to ask his life. Both the prisoners were sent to the tower by water. There was no tumult, but many thousands of people, with anxiety and sorrow in their faces, tried to catch a glimpse of the captives. The duke's resolution failed as soon as he had left the royal presence. On his way to his prison he bemoaned himself, accused his followers, and abjectly implored the intercession of Dartmouth. "'I know, my lord, that you loved my father. For his sake, for God's sake, try, if there be any room for mercy.' Dartmouth replied that the king had spoken the truth, and that a subject who assumed the regal title excluded himself from all hope of pardon. End of part 14